Good morning, Vokatov, everybody. It's so nice to see everybody. Thank you for taking the time to, to, to learn together, to think about ideas together. We're at the, towards the end of our series on the thought of our sex. So we spent a few weeks now, we've looked at very different angles Rabbi Sachs' thought, we looked at challenging the status quo, science and Torah, we looked at Jewish identity, Judaism as a nation or as a religion. Those are some of the topics we talked about. And this, to this topic is a more complex topic, which is called, Are Jews Good Neighbors? Which is a very complex question in and of itself. I'd like to first of all thank Lisa Friedman, who's sponsoring today's shir, as we mark the yard site of both her mother and her sister, Dor uh, Doris Bas Lewis, Mrs. Doris M Musikoff and also her, um, Mrs. Meryl Rubin, Miriam Henya Bas Tzvi, um, whose, whose namesake is also continuing Baruch Hashem and providing, uh, tr providing tremendous nachas to the world. They should both have an alias neshama, and you should have continued good health, and arichos yamim, Hashem Lisa. Thank you for, for sponsoring today's shir. Um, a week ago, just around this time on Sunday, we, uh, we, had, we, it was, we at the shul hosted a pre-Kristallnacht program. To, for those who have not had a chance to watch that program, it's available online. And in it, we, we interviewed a number of, uh, the, of people to presenters. Dr. Abramson presented on the history of anti-Semitism, and we had two other presenters. We had um, Michael Cohen from the Simon Wiesenthal Center, and um, Linda Scherzer from Right on America. Um, and uh, she presented a, uh, they presented very fascinating observations. One thing which was I had not been aware of, and I think it's worthwhile being aware of, is, uh, is, is the idea of uh, what's going on around us, just to be aware of what's going on around us. So I had no idea until last Sunday about a notion of something which is called Rise Up Ocean County. And uh, for those who are not aware of it, you should really just find out a little bit more about it. Rise Up, uh, Rise Up Ocean County is a group which was started, where's Ocean County? Lakewood. Lakewood. So Ocean County is one of the counties in New Jersey. And um, so the, it, it's a particular group which surrounds itself or sort of particularly based in Jackson, which is one of the neighboring towns to Tom's River, the Lakewood area. And what they actually were recently sued by the Attorney General of New Jersey for anti-Semitic laws by trying to change or, or enforce particular zoning laws to prevent Orthodox Jews from buying and, uh, and creating, uh, creating their homes there. And what is interesting about the, about, about the group, I should just put the, 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 the picture on the page. It's actually much more graphic in color. You, know, you can see, you get a sense of, you know, the type of um, imagery and icon, uh, icon, uh, uh, icons they, they, they use. Um, well, it started off as a Facebook group of 5,000 people, just quickly turned into a, a Facebook of 20,000 people. <coughs> and although it was about justice and uh, the, the best of our society, it really was, a, was, in a certain sense, focused against those who are encroaching upon us, i.e. the Jews. And um, it's, so, of course, then um, the, the natural networks, were called the more um, regulated networks, um, booted them off. And then they moved into, and then they moved into uh, um, the, the, we'll call the darker world of unregulated social media, Gab and so on. So um, what is interesting about it is, uh, is, is that, if you, you know, like I just, just looked at it just, just for myself. As you know, like what they do is, is they, they post or retweet um, what the Jews themselves are doing and saying. <laughs> and it's sometimes, unfortunately, it's not always the best. So they'll post a video, you know, an annotated video of, you know, a, a macher in Lakewood talking about how through COVID, our moistos, we worked with the governor that our moistos should remain open when the rest of the world was closed. And we had our simchas and our yeshivas and, and you know, and meaning like that's the Jews 
you know, proudly talking about how they disobeyed state law, you know, and federal law. And so then they, they, would, they would repost those kind of things. And so I don't mean in any way to, to explain anti-Semitism because if anybody's following what happened on the weekend in Poland upon the celebration of, you know, of, of Poland's origins and the burning of Jewish books and the anti-Semitism which spouted from there, anti-Semitism <coughs> comes out wherever it is in the world and, and it is its own terrible beast. And it's amazing that the, po the Poles are so unashamed of their heritage of murder and anti-Semitism that they continue to express it today even though they hide behind the Germans. But if you, but it's an amazing thing to 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 think that, and I don't mean to condone it anyway. But it, I, it does raise a good question. And that is, is, are Jews good neighbors? <laughs> are Jews good neighbors? Are they pleasurable people to have around as they make their developments, as they ignore their their their, their neighbors, as they walk past them? And I just, I'll just you know give you examples just just locally. Somebody was just telling me recently that they have a a, a friend who lives in in North Woodmere, um, a, a South Korean lady very wealthy lady lives there and she, tell, and she tells one of her friends, I don't understand, why is it that on a Sabbath morning I see all these wonderful people, you, you are all wonderful people, but you all walk past me, you don't even say as much as a good morning to me on a, on a, on a Sabbath morning. It's basic, like basic things, you know, like, now on the Jewish side people are saying, well, nah, you know, it's not Shabbos, I'm not going to say, I don't want to, but that's, a, that's from her perspective. Like nobody says, nobody says a, not a single hi, not a single good morning. You know, I was in the bagel store the other day. And, uh, you know, I come in, good morning, how are you? Thank you so much. If it's all right, I'd like to get a, 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 a hold of everything, whatever it is. And then, then the, the fellow behind me, you know, walks in, walks to the counter and says, cream cheese bagel. I'm like, is this a slot machine? I don't know. <laughs> it seemed like a person the last time I looked at it, you know, like, I don't understand. You know, I was in the, the, barber, store, the barber store the other day, well, not a few, a, a little while back. And, and so the, the barber, the Italian barber says to me, oh, rabbi. And so the fellow sitting in the seat says, oh, you're a rabbi. I was like, let me tell you something. You've got to tell your people yeah. right now. Whenever it's a, your people, you know, as if I'm, you know. So it's, this used to be an Italian neighborhood, folks, long before it was uh, a Jewish neighborhood. So let you tell, you, you tell your people that they've got to drive better. So I said, I call this, and to be honest, I'm also a victim of the same circumstance. You know, it says, especially that left turn outside of Gourmet Glad parking lot where everybody's taking an illegal left. Uh, <laughs> so, and he says, and it's always those young ladies in big vans. <laughs> so this is an Italian, right? It lives right over here, right? So it, it happens all the time. And I get cut off equally as much as, uh, as, as our Italian neighbors. Um, so, so it just, you know, and, and listen, and I, 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 sit on a, I sit on a, uh, I sit on a coalition for, um, we'll call it cross, cross religious, um, leadership in the, in the local, in the local area. So I sit with various pastors, various other individuals in our, in our local neighborhood. And yes, there are other faiths that live in the five towns in Farakway, even though we try to think that we are, that we're the only people around here. And it's interesting to listen from their perspective. So as an example, by the Lawrence train station, there's a new development going up. There's a whole negotiation. Every time there's a development, there's a negotiation. So if you remember, on the far side of Lawrence, it's a more of a depressed neighborhood, on the far side of, that, of the neighborhood. And what's interesting is, is that a lot of the residents there who are, who are Hispanic feel it's the Orthodox Jews taking over their rent-controlled areas and, making, and diminishing their, their space to live. So, I, so, and I, so I, I had the opportunity of explaining and talking about this and saying, you know, on, on the side of the Orthodox Jews, we're very limited because we have to live within walking distance of a synagogue and it's very difficult. So that's why pro property values go so high because of the demand for the specific walking distance. But you have to understand, we, we are neighbors. And, and before there's a rise up Nassau County, and I'm not saying it, sh it should be, but we should be thinking about these things. You know, are we good neighbors?
are we as Jews good neighbors? And I, I don't always think the answer is yes. I, don't, I think we're very insular and we're very so concerned about survival. We're very concerned about success of our communities. And I don't think we think very particularly about being a good neighbors. We park anywhere, we, we make synagogues anywhere without zoning, and we do, we do all kinds of corner cutting. I think it's important for us to know this. This is not expanding anti-Semitism. This is a, this is a question, on, uh, I would say, a question mark that requires us to think about it. So bearing this in mind, no questions yet. <laughs> no, just, 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 a, just an observation of, 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 of fact of what I've seen, seeing around us, and I think it's something which it's a question which we ought to answer. It's a question that that uh, requires some careful thought because in our in our success sometimes we forget that we are a part of a much larger whole than that surrounds us. I'd like to to uh, to uh, to start jump into two perspectives that our Sachs shares on this. This comes from from a book which I really highly recommend everybody read. 2005, To Heal a Fractured World, Raya Sachs' perspective on Judaism's relationship with the world itself. Two, two different ideologies. We're going to start with the second one because I realize there's actually perhaps a better place to start. Um, and that is the notion of Tikkun Olam. Tikkun Olam, generally speaking, seems to be the a, a idea which, um, which is adopted, certainly we'll call outside the Orthodox world, seems to be the flag of what Judaism is. Fixing the world, completing the world. So the truth is, is that orthodoxy also has a trademark on that as well, because it is a, a Jewish word. It is a, a, a halachic word. It is a mystical word as well to understand the context with, with, with which, from which it is, it is drawn. Let's, let's jump, jump straight into to trying to understand this. It starts off actually, one of the places where it's formulated in the idea, in the way that we understand it today, is actually in the 1500s by Rav Yitzhak Luria, also known as the Ari, the Ari Zal. So just to appreciate the, 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 that special, special moment in time where Arizal and his contemporaries arrive in Svat. They arrive in Svat at the, immediately following the, uh, the Spanish expulsion of Jewry. The Spanish moment of Jewry was such a successful golden era, certainly in the 1300s. Judaism, Jews were allowed to be part of society unlike in Europe in their, with their sister countries in uh, backward, uh, uh, backward Europe at the time, and they succeeded in so many different way, uh, ways, whether it be in philosophy, whether it be in astronomy and cartography, in all the different arenas. Jews were financiers, they were diplomats, they were sought for their advice, and they were respected in society. And they remember Spain itself was undergoing a number of changes, certainly from Muslim to Christian, and then different fundamentalist Christian groups, the Dominicans, at certain points were in control. And as the 1300s moved into the 1400s, there were a number of forced conversions where Jews were met forced to live under much more depleted um, circumstances and there were a number of, a number of, of, uh, of forced conversions. The forced conversions led, led to more problems because what happened was is that when there was a forced conversion, the Jews were technically speaking were now Christians, had no bars. They didn't have to live in particular neighborhoods, weren't limited in marriage, weren't limited in jobs as much as their brethren who were Jews. But that means to say that they started succeeding incredibly because they, <laughs> Jews, are, generally speaking, work very hard to get to where they need to, which meant there was more jealousy because now the Christians said, well, they're not really Christians because they're too successful. Right? So, so then that's when the Inquisition began. The Inquisition was not against Jews, it was against converso Jews. And so they would torture them to the point that they could get, a con get, a, get a, uh, an, an admission. And then they would take their property, which was the primary point of the Inquisition, was fueling a war effort down to the Moors in the south. That was how it worked. It's all financially motivated. Um, it was, of course, the religiously motivated who were, who were conducting it, but on a governmental level, it was, there was a lot of finances which were, which were involved, and finally leading to the expulsion in 1492. This was such a tremendous change in the Jewish world. The reverberations were felt, and as Dr. Abramson talks about in many of his lectures, the reverberations were felt for centuries afterwards. It changed the face of Jewry in Europe and beyond. 
all of the Ottoman Empire, the gains of the Jews they had, the Portugal, Morocco, the North African area, um, area, the gains of Jews. A number of Jews were able to move to the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire at this point in time was very laissez-faire about movement of Jews and Jewish study. And that's why you had an incredible dearth of growth of Jewry. So the Ottoman Empire also allowed travel. So people like the, the with the likes of Rabbi Yosef Karo, who actually spent time in learning Yeshiva in Livorno, was able to travel to another part of the Ottoman Empire called, at this time, a vestigial name from the Roman Empire called Palestine. They are settled in the hills of Tzfat. And with a number of people in that particular group developed a tremendous um, a, a tremendous, this was a what we'll called nexus of thought, of Jewish thought for a century. People in the same group were people like Rav Moshe Kodver, um, Ramak. We also have the Al-Sheikh at this point in time, Rav Yosef Kara. We have Rav Shlomo Al-Kabetz, Rav Azkiri. We have a tremendous we'll call constellation of great thinkers who, who arrive at Svat, and they all are different. Many of the mystical, many also halachicists as well. So the, one of the greatest of them, one of the most highly respected was Rav Yitzhak Luria, who came from Egypt, actually, also part of the Ottoman Empire, and, um, and settled in Sfat. And he only lived there for a very short period of time, for two years. He did not write down his writings. His student, Rav, Rav Chaim Vital, wrote down many of his, of his ideas. And he, he developed a particular idea where he talked about the following. He said like this. Here's the Shaila that he asked. If HaKadosh Baruch Hu is infinite, he's complete, then how is it possible that there can be a world? Right? Very basic question. How can the infinite have space for finitude? Very basic question, right? So if there is space for something which is finite, then the, the other entity must also be finite. And if, it is, if the other entity is infinite, then where is there space for finite? We, to which he introduced the concept in, 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 uh, in, in Kabbalah, which is the, this, this notion which is what's called Tzimtzum, where HaKadosh Baruch Hu, in a certain sense, self-effaced himself, created a hollow, a space in which it seemed that God was not there. That doesn't mean to say that God wasn't there. It means to say that God chose it to be that from the inside of that space, it seemed that he was absent. Very complicated idea. Rabbi Sachs actually talks about this other, uh, when it comes to Shabbos. If you think about it, Shabbos is the exact parallel opposite. It's the, the, the other idea where we in our, in, our, in our world create a vacuum in our lives where we're not creative, inviting God back into the space in our lives, which he was per, uh, originally. If you think about that, it's a symptom within symptom. Okay, the donut hole within the donut hole, for those who catch the reference. It's worthwhile thinking about uh, appre appreciating that, that notion of, uh, of, of what Shabbos essentially is, is a reflection of God's, in, so to speak, simsum in the world, is art simsum in our lives to create, to create space for the other. But be it as it may, so he creates this simsum, this space. From the outside, it's still part of his infinity, but from the inside, it seems that there's, he's absent, which is why we live very independent lives. And then... The, the next step that, uh, that, that uh, Rav Luria says is he talks about this notion of what's called Shviras Kalim. Very hard concept to understand. Um, but the notion is like this, is that for a moment, the infinite, that's God, chose, chose to express his infinite light through this finite world. But the finite cannot contain the infinite. And therefore, parts of the receptors or the, recipro the receivers on the, you know, on the side of the finite broke. Right, so there were what's called shviras kelim, the vessels that which could absorb the infinite broke as they absorbed the infinite, and thereby scattered through the rest of the world parts of infinite in broken pieces, in broken shards. That's what's called nitzotzos, these sparks of holiness. And the the point of our living, the point of our world, is to be able to take those little nitzotzos, go to the darkest of places to pull out those broken vessels where the infinite once shone. 
and put it back together to, to fix those, to mend those kalim. That's the notion of what's called Shiraz Kalim Begadol. It's a very complex um, topic in and of itself. And our, our idea over here is essentially Tikkun Olam, which is fixing that world, that world which could contain the infinite but doesn't contain the infinite because it broke to a certain degree. That's, the, that's what is uh, the, the, the idea of, of the, the Tikkun Olam. Where did he get that from? So it turns out that there are two times before Rav Luria where the word Tikkun Olam is used in very different contexts. One context is actually in the halachic terminology. So as an example, there's many Mishnahs and Gittin which talk about Tikkun Olam in source 12. You flip all the way to the end, we were actually starting in the other direction. He says, Misha, as an example, let's say you have Misha Chetzer, Ever Chetzer Ben Choren, Oivet Es Rabo Yom Echod, Ves Atzmo Yom Echod. So you have these interesting halachic, so to speak, you know, concepts of a person who's half free, half Half uh, a slave. How does it work? How can you get there? So what was that? Partners. Up to, uh, you have a part, part ownership in a slave and one person frees the slave. So now he's, he's living in this limbo world. Credits for a phenomenal halachic nafkamina. Ayin sefer achinuch. Sefer minchas chinuch. Some people say that the sefer minchas chinuch, jokingly, is a sefer on a chemisha chetzu ever chetzu ben chayin with all the nafkaminas of the rest of the world. So, <laughs> so nonetheless, so you have a person who's half-half. And he has to work, he has to, he has to serve um, um, his rabbi, and uh, he, one day he's subservient, one day he's independent. So like, okay, the second master is, is happy now, but what about himself? He's, well, he can't go on a vacation, he can't do anything, he's basically living in limbo. So he can't get married because he's getting married, which, which state in society? Um, you say, oh, so you shouldn't get married? So he says, but then the world's got, he is not part of the creative process of, of, of creating a legacy, of creating future generations. She wanted the world to be fixed. So because of Tikkun Olam, right? This is not Tikkun Olam in like today's, Tikkun Olam is a, a jurisprudence. This is a law. That means so we force the second master to free the slaves so this person can now be a productive member of society. If he's a slave, he can be part of his uh, culture, his, uh, slave culture. There's laws that govern that. If he's a free, he can go, there's laws that govern him, but he can't be in limbo. That's Tikkun Olam as an example. Adopted their, uh, their perspective to, to Beis Shammai. Another example. This is a very, good, a very applicable halacha today. Is you can't redeem slaves for more than their value. Why? What's, what, that's Tikkun Olam. What's the Tikkun Olam over here? What is that? Incentivization, right? So what's going to happen is, is that if you deal with a hostage situation, you start negotiating and you pay more than the value of what that person's worth, then it's just going to incentivize more kidnappings, right? Unfortunately, a situation which we are in the throes of even today, right? Very complex questions. This is what's called the halachic concept of tikkun olam. Over here, it seems to be a legal, a legal detail when it comes to how to govern society. Society needs to have certain tikkun olam. There's certain things which cannot exist because perhaps if there weren't a tikkun olam, it would fall through the gaps and they would be left in a limbo state, in a state of, 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 uh, of, of worse future um, situations. However, there's another aspect of tikkun olam. We said this just a few minutes ago for those who daven. We will say this in a few minutes for those who are about to daven. And that is, we say it, al nakave. We say, al nakave Hashem Therefore, we hope of you, Hashem our God, to see in the your grandeur soon and to, that you should cut off all the pagan deities to fix the world that's the same word to fix the world in the dominion of God and all of flesh should call in your name 
beautiful. Notice who's doing the tikkun over here, folks. Who is the person doing the tikkun? God. He's like, we're saying, Hashem, Hashem, we hope in you that you're going to do all of this. You are going to. They will be cut down. This is not about what we're doing. This is a prayer and a hope and aspiration that there will be a day when ultimately there will be tikkun olam, when the world will be fixed. But that's in God's department. It's not about us. What the beauty of what Rav Luria was doing was he was saying the following. I see there's a halachic, there's a halachic notion of tikkun olam, where we fix society by certain laws, which sort of tape up the holes, the loopholes in society. I see another notion of a, a prayer and aspiration for a future, for a better place, where we talk about every day, thrice daily, to ask for tikkun olam that you are going to conduct in the future. Says Rav Luria, perhaps there's a space for human beings on a daily basis to also engage in that process, to also be able to pull together, to mend together a little bit of that world, action by action. Now, one little proviso to this, as Rav Sachs points out, if you take a look at this in Teal Fractured World in Source 13, he says the following, in choosing the phrase tikkun olam, Rav Luria was thus bringing together two ideas, one from Jewish law, the other one from Jewish prayer, neither of which had the sense he had, that he attached to it. Nonetheless, Luriatic Kabbalah does express an idea fundamental to Judaism, spanning the whole history from creation to the end of days. And now he makes it, this is his proviso. One thing I must make clear, Tikkun Olam as Rav Luria conceived of it, is a mystical and spiritual idea, it is not societal action. From the, for Kabbalists, we mend the world not by healing the sick and feeding the hungry, but by prayer and by observance of the commands. Jewish mysticism is about the commands linking us to God, not those relating us to other people. To be sure, each of our, each of our acts has the effects of the, on the upper world, uh, the deep structure of reality, but this is not through normal channels of causation. Tikkun Olam, in the Lurianic sense, is about the soul, not about the world. The spirit, not the body, metaphysical fracture, not poverty and disease. Luria Karabona is at best a metaphor, not a prescription for the forms of social action I've prescribed in this book. But it remains a compelling metaphor nonetheless. It suggests that our acts make a difference. They repair fractures in the world. They restore lost order. They rescue fragments of the divine light. They mend the damage done by evil men, even the imperfections that are part of creation itself. Our moral imagination is shaped by such metaphors. Lurianic Kabbalah is not afraid to look at catastrophe without concluding that the world is irreparable, evil, endemic, that his history is a meaningless sequence of events, that human situation is irredeemable. Out of broken fragments, it shapes the mosaic of hope. So what he's essentially saying is that it's not the Tikkun Olam that I'm telling you. I'm not trying to wear the sweatshirt of Rav Luria, the Arizal, as if he meant to say that it's about going to save the whales and fix the environment. It was very specifically about Tefillah, Tzedakah, Torah, but it is a metaphor for the notion that even me and you have the opportunity of fixing the world one brick at a time, fixing those notions around us, and that changes based on society. Rav Sachs points out that, that the notion of Tikkun Olam as expressed in, Rav, in Arizal's idea is not governed by halacha, meaning it's not specific, it's not prescribed, it's not in Shulchan Aruch, it's not, that's why it's so hard to find all these sources. It's not about this particular act or that particular act. Sometimes it requires different situations, different circumstances to what the Tikkun Olam that we're in the situation that we're best placed there to do. This is notion number one. Idea number one, which is the notion of Tikkun Olam. I think it's a very beautiful perspective of trying to pull together these ideas and just realizing as well that this is not simply an idea outside the realm of orthodoxy. This is something which is deeply embedded in the way that we're supposed to be acting, although we perhaps don't talk about it perhaps enough. The idea number one. Idea number two. This is, this is, a, this is a, a, a very different idea. This is a different chapter as well. And this comes to the notion of peace. 
peace is a very interesting concept in general. Peace um, is something which the, the, the Hebrew Bible, which the Tanakh talks about long before it became popular. As an example, in the words um, that's, going to, uh, that's going to resonate, these are carved in the UN buildings, although one would wonder how much they read them. The, 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 um, in Yeshayal Perik Beis, where it talks about Vashafat ben Hagoyim Vaychiach Amim Rabim. This is not in the sources, this is just outside. Vechitsu Charvoisem, Charvoisem Leitim, Vachani Soisehem, Lemazme Rois. Oloyusa Goyal Goycher, Veloyim Zuod Milchama. That there's this prophetic notion that there's going to be a time in the, in the future where weapons will be turned into tools of product, productivity, and tools of agriculture, and there will no longer be war. That's, uh, that, that's, uh, this is a notion that, that, that Yeshayahu talks about. Now, by the way, just as an interesting uh, aside, Rav Sachs said this in 2017 when the embassy moved to Jerusalem that the previous pasuk is, anybody know? It's important to know this. It says, Ki mitzion Yerushalayim. So Rav Sachs points out you can only really achieve peace if you know where the center, or center of the world really is. This is an interesting observation. Okay, that's something which the UN would not be willing to. They only like to quote specific psukim on their walls. But yes, Torah comes out of Zion. That was before Islam was created, um, invented or thought of. So it's important to appreciate the centrality of, of, of this idea. Now, why is, why is peace so important? If you think about it today, we're like, oh, of course, you know. <laughs> what a wonderful idea. That was not the popular idea. Really until 1914 or maybe even there afterwards, war was a fabulous thing. It was mystical. It was the same ideas of the order of chaos and gods and the pantheon all fighting each other. It was like the storm and the rain and the wind. It was a natural process. It was a valorous process. It was something to be celebrated. I mean, if you think about it, the wars, the, the way the Greeks described the wars, Wars was a wonderful thing. People up till now, in the Civil War in America, in 1914, people were running into war. It was such an exciting thing that people should have the opportunity of fighting for their country, nationalism, and sacrificing their lives for the mother country. This was something which was only until the carnage of millions and millions of lives which were lost in the trenches. And then suddenly the, the, the chemical warfare which was de developed. And then finally a, a, a nuclear warfare which was developed towards the end of the Second World War. That people realized that this war business is going to cost us a lot of lives if we carry on doing it. And that's when suddenly humanity so, 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 started re-examining themselves. And the League of Nations followed by the United Nations tried to, so, to deal with this particular issue. And that's where the right of con uh, conquest sort of uh, reversed and the status quo became the, the, the name of the day. But the, the, the prophets talked about this long before that humanity arrived at this conclusion, long before the weapons of mass destruction uh, swept, the uh, swept the planet. And the reason why war or peace is such a complicated process and such a complicated ideal is it's very easy, not easy, but it's much more common for a person to be willing to sacrifice their life for the sake of war. But how many people have been valor, have enough valor, have enough confidence, have enough, have enough strength of character to fight for peace? Because here's the issue with peace. We discussed at the Shabbos table the other, the other day. Just an interesting point about the danger of compromise. You see, when I represent a country and I can blame all my problems on the neighbors and they took our water source and they took our land and they're all bad and they're terrible people. Well, it's actually easy because now there's an us and a them. But now if I start shaking hands with them, then who, our identity falls apart. Who's us and who's them? If I come back with a compromise and we are fighting over a particular part of land and I come back and I say, well, folks, good news and bad news, right? So the bad news is I didn't get the whole thing, but the good news is I got half of it and we're not going to fight anymore. 
So nobody's interested in that. What do you, <laughs> you mean you didn't conquer the whole thing? You mean you're too weak? You mean you don't have the gall or, 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 or resilience to carry on fighting? The potential of war is much more exciting. The potential of conquest, full conquest, is much more exciting than the in-between of half coming back with half. If you think about this, let's go back to the 70s, right? And you think about um, uh, Menachem Begin and Anwar Sadat, right? The people who murdered Sadat were people who were in that, ca- in that camp. It's a zero-sum game. We either carry on fighting till we kill them or we just carry on fighting, right? There's no, there's no such thing as a peace. The notion that we could actually, each side could make very difficult sacrifices. Israel giving up a huge amount of land. Egypt giving up its, its aspirations for full conquest and dominion of the Middle East. These are very, very complex issues about the notion of compromise. It doesn't look like you're winning. It doesn't look like you got, you're coming back with the same, the same prize. Yeshayah was talking about this so long, this notion of peace. And peace doesn't always look the same way as you expect, expe- express it. Now, the question becomes like this. So this is all very nice when Yeshayah was talking to a Jewish nation, like we learned, look, looked at last, last week. When Israel is living on its territory, Yeshayah was at this point in time, Yeshayah was talking to a nation which is extremely successful, the northern kingdom is, has expanded boundaries at the time. He's talking about Yoram ben Yoash at this point in time, has expanded the territory. The, the southern kingdom is at peace. It's a very successful moment in history. Sovereignty, political, uh, political control, and expanded boundaries. And then the question is, so how does the other live in this realm of peace? This is between nations. So what happens if there's somebody else who's living among, among, among the Jews? There's a notion of what's called Ger Toshav. The Torah talks about this already, is that if you have a person who is not of the faith of Judaism, who lives in the land of Israel, there are certain regulations. They can live there as long as they practice the seven universal laws. So they're not doing their pagan, you know, idol worship in their backyard. They're able to live as part of society. And they're welcomed into that society. There's certain, there's certain things. If it's a Canaanite nation, it's a little more complicated. But, but, but when it comes to other people living there, there is that notion. What happens when things are reversed? What happens when now Israel no longer has sovereignty? What happens when Israel is no longer calling the shots as to what the society is going to be, what the rules are going to be, how taxes are formed, how government policy is, is, uh, is, um, is created? So what, what about then? So when it comes to that, we have a very remarkable um, idea, a, a counterintuitive idea, where the notion of what Yeshayahu's peace, this grand idea of peace between nations, no longer can be in effect because we're not in the position to offer it or give it. So Yirmiyahu sends a letter. This is a letter at the t- same time as Yechezkel. He's talking to the people like Yechezkel, like Mordechai and his family, who've already been taken into exile in Babylon. And they are now suffering what he predicted they would suffer for many years, even though they didn't listen to him and didn't believe him. And he sends them a letter in Perakir, Echavtes of Yirmiyahu. And you can imagine, you know, if you were Yirmiyahu, this is your perfect opportunity to say, I told you so. I warned you and you jailed me and you persecuted me and you didn't listen and now you're in exile, you see? Right, that's what Yirmiyahu could have said. He doesn't say that, although he he certainly had the rights to say that. But now he says, he prescribes a policy which is so counterintuitive. Here's what he says. Source 1. To the whole nation where I sent you to Bovel. Build houses, plant vineyards, eat of their fruits. Don't, don't minimize yourself. Don't stop. Continue to build. Continue to have families. Be successful. And here it is. And seek out the peace of the city that you find yourself in. 
to the place that you find yourself in exile. Pray for it, El Hashem. In its peace, you will find peace. Different perspective of peace. Here the majority is not Jewish. Here it's a minority is Jewish. But make sure you pray for the peace. You are part of the process of the success of the society you're in because in its success, you will find success. Wow, that's remarkable. You know, Yirmiyahu could have said so many other things. He could have talked about segregation and insulation. And yet he talks about integration, which is so counterintuitive. This, is, this is, could be the recipe for absolute assimilation. And by the way, sometimes it does happen. And when, uh, when they go down to ba Babylon and they come back, they can't speak Hebrew for many of them when they come back. Rabbinic Judaism is not in its full, full strength <laughs> at this point in time, only prophetic Judaism. Rabbinic Judaism is about to be created after this because of this. Very complicated time. Yirmiyahu talks about the notion of dealing with the shalom in the society it's, uh, one finds oneself. Later on, actually, Ezra as well, when he uh, comes back and he starts rebuilding Israel, you'll notice, by the way, the, the language of these psukim in source 2, right? What's different about the language? It's all Aramaic, right? So not all of your Ezra, but the middle chapters of Ezra are in Aramaic. That's the language that he speaks coming back from Babylon. That's the language everybody's speaking. Aramaic. So let's do it in English, just for the sake of those who are more proficient with English than Aramaic. And I hereby issue an order concerning that you must do, do to help the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God. So this is a letter sent by the Persian, the Persian king to the governors of the state of Judea. He says, the expenses are to be paid by the men with dispatch out of the resources of the king that derived from the taxes of the province beyond the river, so that the work not be stopped. So he's now taxing the province beyond the river, which is the northern states, to pay for the building of the Besamekdash. And he says, they are to be given daily without fail, whatever the need of the young bulls, rams, or lambs, or burnt offerings for the God of heaven, the wheat, the salt, wine, oil, at the order of the priests of Jerusalem, so they may, pray, pay, may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. So Persian king is saying, is I'm going to provide you with all this wherewithal. I'm going to give you a pipeline of supplies to build the base of Milash, to sacrifice the base of Milash. For what purpose? You can serve, serve to Agosh Baruch Hu and pray for me. Right? So there's this, remember that the building of the second base of Milash is a much more of a humble experience. There's no Aaron Akkadish, there's no Shekhinah, there's no miracles. And it's under Persian control. There's a Persian flag hanging at the entrance of the base of Milash because that's the way it is. It was not a sovereign Jewish state at this point in time. And he's saying, it's the same rules, right? What he's saying is the same rules as Yirmiyahu and Avi. You're going to be praying for me because I'm in charge here. That's, that's the notion of a Jew living under somebody else's control. What is interesting about this is, um, I'm just trying to remember if, which king, because we're in Perik Vov, um, and I'm trying to remember if, the, I think this is Artach Shasta, if I'm not mistaken. For more details, I, I'll give it, give it a few shares on this particular topic because the, the chronology of Sefer Ezra is very complex and there's different, uh, different ideas, but I believe this, this parak is about Artach Shasta, Artaxerxes. Yes, the Gemara talks about it. Just, I'm just saying it happens to me. It's very complicated because there's Achashverosh and there's Korosh and there's Cambyses who's not mentioned in the Pesukim. A lot of, a lot of, a lot of different folks over here. Yeah, no, so Artaxerxes is over there. There's a lot of folks. Xerxes, Artaxerxes, Artaxerxes II. Darius, Darius II, a lot of folks over here that in this book, there's a, a few stops and starts of this whole business. And then you have the Persian, uh, the Persian version, there's a lot of interesting things to consider. Um, but what is interesting is what Chazal did with this. So post-prophecy, Ezra is at the end. Ezra, according to, according to the Gemara, is actually Malachi. Malachi is the last prophet. So as things beat away, so what did Chazal do with this? What did our sages, no longer in prophecy, how did, how did they regulate this? So the Mishnah talks about this numerous times. 
And th- this is another notion. Also, the Mishnah is in Gitan. Mishnah says, "Ein memachin biyadei beyad aniyeh ovdei kachovim beleket v'shichchal peya." So there's a notion. Let's say that a non-Jew, a Gentile, comes to collect in the fields of Jews, and they want to collect leket shichchal peya, the the part which is which is part of the um, gifts to the poor. So you leave over the corner the grains which are left behind, forgotten, the ones that fall down onto the floor. That's the halacha of leket shichchal peya. A Gentile comes and wants to collect now. Says the Mishnah, you don't, you don't turn them away. The ways to peace, as an example. Um, there, are, there are numerous other examples of Darke Shalom. What Darke Shalom argues Rav Sachs is not peace itself. We can't create peace because we don't have a country or sovereignty to be able to facilitate that. What Chazal were doing was they were extending the notion of Yirmiyahu, which is we live in a place, let's all try to work together. And in a certain sense, some of us think, oh, well, that's just because Ava, because we just don't want to create, we don't want to uh, create too many ripples on the pond. But his argument is that actually it's an ideal, not just simply a survival tactic. An ideal means to say is that our Kodesh Baruch Hu wants us, as Yirmiyahu says, he wants us to be able to be successful in the various multiple locations in whatever language or sovereignty or, or that, we're, that we're in. That's an attempt to get towards. It's not peace. It's not Shalom as Yishayahu imagined it. It's Darke Shalom. It's the ways towards that peace of the society we're around. In fact, this is actually the source for halacha that we keep on Shabbos, which the Mishnah Avos says, is that Rabbi Chanina Sgana Kahanim Omer, Pray for the government, because without it, we would be destroyed. And as Rasaks points out in another, another book, the, the idea that this is actually told about the Roman government. Pray for the Roman government because without it, Israel Chaim Belo'oi refers to maybe the Jews would be killing themselves as they did at the end of the second time of Beis reign. Very complicated. We see we see this throughout throughout history as this notion of um, of praying for the government. That praying for the government is part of Darke Shalom. Part of living in a society where we're not in charge, but we're trying to work with that society around us, trying to be part of it in a successful in the way that we possibly can. In Rav Sachs's own words, he says. Where does this idea come from in Source 9? The rabbis derived it from the verse in the book of Proverbs. Its ways are ways of pleasantness and its paths are peace. All its paths are peace. That is a textual warrant. Historically, however, it was born in the Jewish experience of exile. It emerged because Jews, having, having in the biblical era lived in their own land, were now dispersed, minorities in pagan cultures. De- de- definitive of this context was a letter written 2,600 years ago by the prophet Jeremiah to the exiles in Babylon and Egypt. And that's what we just read over here, skipping the verse. This was a wise and far-sighted policy that shaped Jewish behavior from then to the present. Jews were to maintain their identity as Jews, but at the same time contribute to the societies in which they belonged. If belonging is not too generous a word to describe the marginal disenfranchised existence in which Jews were often condemned, beautifully said. Jeremiah was no less utopian than Isaiah and Micah, but on this occasion his prophecy was pragmatic. Seven centuries later, so was the teaching of the sages. They had, been, they had seen the failure of two other options. The first was assimilation, specifically Hellenization. This robbed Jews of their identity and led, as in the days of Seleucids, Seleucids and the Maccabees, to the banning of religious practice. The second was rebellion, in the last years of the Second Temple and again 65 years later in the time of the Bar Kokhba revolt. These were the two most dangerous, disastrous events in Jewish history, leading to defeat, disempowerment and dispersion. Remembering Jeremiah, the sages formulated a third way to sustain their faith through institutions that, unlike the temple, could be established anywhere. The synagogue, the school, the house of study, and the home. 
In the meantime, in the meanwhile, they would practice what they what they today would call the active citizenship in the countries of the dispersion. They would give to others in need as well as to the members of their own community. The ways of peace was not peace. Israel was in exile. The time was out of joint. But the diaspora jury could nonetheless create, if not peace, then at least ways that led to it. They could perform acts of kindness. They could contribute to the common good without relinquishing the ultimate hopes of return and the messianic age. They could create at least a fragment of peace in the here and now. This was a vision no less noble for its modesty. For its modesty. Sometimes modest ideals change the world more benignly than their more revolutionary counterparts. Just a beautiful observation of the way that a Jew is supposed to live in exile. And I want to take one step further, and I mentioned this a few weeks ago, but it's so important to, to appreciate when we had the Chagas Smicha Shabbaton. This was an essay that our Sachs had published in 2013, which is eight years after this book, called A Judaism Engaged with the World. It was to mark the end of his tenure as the chief rabbi of um, the United Kingdom and the Commonwealth. And in it, he talks about three models of Judaism engaged with the world. And uh, just a quick, quick recap for those who are not there. He talks about in the book of Beratius, we see three individuals who try their, 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 their luck at, or try their policy at trying to live with a world that's different to their beliefs. The first is a person by the name of Noach. Noach lives in a very complex society. He is a monotheist. He believes in God. But there are, society around him is corrupt and not living with God on their sleeves, certainly. And his way, his way of success is what's called segregation. And what he does is he minds his own business, he builds his ark, he takes his family in his ark, and he survives, and he succeeds in surviving. But if you imagine what Noach must have felt as he walks off that teva, and there is nothing, no neighbors, no friends, no restaurants, no, no society, no cities, no countries. One can only imagine the survivor's guilt that Noach must feel. If only he had just had a conversation with the mailman. If only when he went to the bagel store, he'd, he'd engaged him in some sort of theological discussion. If only he had cared enough about his neighbors to invite them over to tell them about monotheism. But he didn't. He was a tzaddik. And a tzaddik is a righteous person, but not a leader, necessarily. And that's where a lot of the criticism of Chazal come in. Where tzaddik, but darosav or not. Unlike Avraham, he saw, Avraham saw Sodom being destroyed. Unlike that, Noach was not concerned, necessarily, or couldn't be concerned, or was not willing to be concerned enough to change society around him. The notion of segregation, successful somewhat. Then you have another individual, his name is Lot. Lot also deals with the problem of society around him. How do you succeed in a society which is unlike yours? Lot had another solution, that was assimilation. I'm going to move to the center of the metropolis in the Middle East. I'm going to move to the cities of the plain where it's successful. I'm going to elevate myself in that society. The angels find him, Bashar Air, at the gate. Who lives at the gate? The judge. He is, the, he, is, he is essentially this foreigner who's worked his way up the rungs of a very complicated, different and, and successful society, and he's now a respected statesman of that society. That's, not, that's Lot's idea, um, idea. However, the failure of both of those models is obvious. The failure of the Noach idea of, of segregation and insulation is on the one hand, as much as you turn your back on the bad in society, you also turn your, your back on the good in society as well and nobody is saved with you because you don't care about anybody who is your neighbor they sink with you they sink well while you turn your back and succeed for yourself that's the, the noach model however literally sink when it comes to lot the opposite is true the failure of lot's success is is the following is that when you start talking about your ideals again i had do hospitality i believe in abrahamic <coughs> hospitality well then people don't like that so much and when people uh, people start getting agitated and they surround your house and you go out to them and you say after spending decades of building relationships 
and investing in the society around you and speaking their language and running up the rungs of their society to the highest of stations. And you say, My brothers, after all, we live together. We deal with each other. I've, I've, I threw off the yamulka and, and the, and the tefillin long ago. We're in the same society. My brothers don't just they live and they live. It's multiculturalism. Lord, here's the words which a Jew has heard in every single society that they ever set foot on. And that is, Echod Bolagur. Ah, this foreigner, he comes and he's to stay with us, and now he is judging us. The first words that our sex points out is of anti Semitism, essentially, which has ever been said. This the Jew heard in every single country. They tried to integrate and they tried to assimilate in every different society. And you know what? At the top, they were always reminded, you're not like us. You're going to tell us what to do? You think you, as the foreigner, have rights? That's what the Jew heard in every country, the assimilation model, unsuccessful. And then you have the Avra model. And the Avra model is integration. Avram is, is on the one hand, I don't live in Sodom, but I welcome people who come to my tent on my own terms into my tent. I wash off their feet from their pagan worship of their sand on their feet, but you're on, you're on my terms. You want to start thanking me for the meal? I'll direct your thanks upwards. When I hear about the neighbors who are about to be destroyed, and by the way, justly so because they're a perverted society, I will still pray for them and intercede with God because I care about them even though they deserve to die because I care about society around me. That's what Avram Avinu's model is. Raya Sachs argues that for centuries, this, this is his observation, listen to this observation, it's a very strong moment. Source 10 closes this. Assimilation made sense in the 19th and 20th centuries in a Jewish world traumatized by anti-Semitism. Well, he's not condoning this, he's explaining the societal movements. It makes no sense at all today, either in Israel or the multicultural democracies in the West. In the United States, where outmarriage continues at a rate of one in two, Harvard socialist Robert Putnam has shown that Jews are the group more, more respected and admired than any other. Segregation has made, made immense sense after the Holocaust, when heartlands of tradition of Eastern Europe had been almost entirely obliterated. But today, the miracle of rebirth, the Akhari community is stronger than it was before the start of the Second World War. It has won the battle. We are in debt. By sheer commitment and dedication, it has brought the worlds of Jewish learning and practice back to life. Now is the time to turn outward and share its energies with the rest of the world. The battle for the 21st century is the one the Jews have been waiting for, for at least 2,000 years. What if we had a Jewish state and, and could do what Jews have been commanded to do since the days of Moses? Build a society based on Torah values of righteousness, justice, kindness, and compassion, and the great prophetic virtues. What if non-Jews no longer looked down on Judaism as, an, as inferior to Christianity, Islam, or enlightened universalism? What if they actually respected it as a source of wisdom and inspiration? Meaning, can we, can we move back to the Avram model? Is there a moment to move back to the notion of engagement with the society and teaching the values? Do we have enough strength and belief in ourselves to be able to take that to the rest of the world? And I would argue that it's individuals like himself who represented the bastion and ambassadorship that he is talking about as well. Perhaps not for all. Perhaps not for all of Jewish society, to regulate all of Jewish society. But certainly it's a time to think about the very complicated question, which is, are Jews good neighbors? That's a moral responsibility we have to ask ourselves because one extreme or the other doesn't seem to work so well in answering this question. Rabbi Isla, thank you so much for, this, for your time and thank you for being part of this series.